Jambase podcast listeners. I'm Andy Kahn, and Jambase is a partner of Osiris Media, the podcast network for music. Coming up on this episode is an interview with Natalie Crespo, who plays trombone in the Trainastasio band. Natalie spoke to Jambase's Scott Bernstein about the new Natalie Cressman and Ian Facchini album, Auburn Whisper, that comes out on April 15th through Ground Up Music. We'll get to that interview in just a moment. But first, here's a word from this episode's sponsor. This episode is sponsored by La La Lay. La La Lay is an online AI-powered source-separating service. In 2021, La La Lay became the world's first eight-stem splitter capable of extracting voice, accompaniment, drums, piano, bass, acoustic guitar, electric guitar, and synthesizer. La La Lay introduces a new and improved way to extract vocals and instruments from audio and video sources. The service uses a machine learning algorithm to precisely identify and carefully separate stems. It utilizes the power of AI to improve the lives of millions of musicians, DJs, producers, vocalists, dancers, karaoke lovers, and others. Artificial intelligence has previously been used as a solution for the complex task of vocal track isolation. But La La Lay is the first service to suppress even Spleeder by Deezer and now do Phonic Mind in accessibility and quality of results. The recent La La Lay update allows musicians to use cutting-edge artificial intelligence technology to easily remove beats, instruments, and vocal parts from songs. The novel AI-powered splitting solution enables precise and high-quality sound results. The technology, which is similar to what Peter Jackson used for the Beatles' Get Back documentary, lets creators isolate sounds to produce next-gen mixes, mashups, and loops. La La Lay helps developers and business owners to expand the range of their services by offering them server solutions. High-quality isolation of voice and instruments can be installed on a client's own server or utilized via La La Lay's infrastructure. The La La Lay team is planning to continue creating new opportunities for sound professionals and creative people around the world while keeping the bar high for stem separation quality. Don't just trust their word for it. See for yourself. Compare the quality of isolated tracks extracted with La La Lay against other services. New users can try out the functionality of La La Lay online by splitting up to 10 minutes of tracks for free. Visit La La Lay. That's L-A-L-A-L dot A-I and start separating stems today. The day this episode is published, April 7th, is the 50th anniversary of the start of the Grateful Dead's 1972 tour of Europe that was the source of the landmark live album, Europe 72, that came out later that year. The Dead's Europe 72 tour was notable for being the first with vocalist Donna Jean Gacho. The rest of the band's lineup at the time consisted of Donna's husband, keyboardist Keith Gacho, guitarist Jerry Garcia and Bob Weir, drummer Bill Kreutzmann, bassist Phil Lesh, and keyboardist Ron Pickpin McKernan. While Europe 72 was Donna's first tour with the Dead, it was Pickpin's last with the band that he co-founded. Pickpin's health issues worsened upon the band's return, and his last gig with the Dead took place in June 1972. He sadly passed away in March 1973 at the age of just 27. In honor of the 50th anniversary of the Dead's historic Europe 72 tour, Jambase is taking a retrospective look back at each of the 22 performances that took place between April 7th and May 26th. The series is sponsored by our friends at Section 119, who offer a diverse range of quality Grateful Dead, Donut Pattern, David Bowie, Pink Floyd, and other music-related apparel. Section 119 is always working on new products, so stay tuned to see what they roll out next. Each concert retrospective will focus more on what was played rather than how it was played, leaving the listening choices up to you. We'll be breaking down the set lists with statistical analysis as we journey from show to show and country to country. The approach is similar to the skinny setlist breakdowns that we do for Fish and Dead and Company shows, along with some interesting details and fun facts about the gigs. Each article is accompanied by links to stream officially released recordings of all 22 shows. The first retrospective article was published today and presented a recap of opening night at Wembley Empire Pool in London, England. 
I mentioned Dead & Company just a second ago, which features Grateful Dead members Bobby Weir, Billy Kreisman, and Mickey Hart. And tickets to their 2022 summer tour go on sale tomorrow, Friday, April 8th. Opening night is on June 11th at Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles. And the tour ends on July 15th and 16th at City Field in New York City. Visit Jambase for a guide to scoring tickets to see Bobby, Mickey, and Billy, along with John Mayer, Oteil Burbridge, and Jeff Comenti, this summer at a venue near you. And congratulations are in store for Billy Kreutzman. His band Billy and the Kids, featuring Reed Mathis, Tom Hamilton, and Aaron Magner, won the Jambase March Madness 2022 Live Covers Tournament. Billy and the Kids were joined by special guests Billy Strings and James Casey on a cover of Bob Dylan's Tangled Up in Blue. By a margin of just four percentage points, the collaborative cover defeated Fish's recent debut cover of Jimi Hendrix's If Six Was Nine. Congrats to Billy and the Kids for winning this year's championship. And congrats to Billy Strings, who was a repeat winner after taking home the 2021 championship. We'll have to see if Billy, that's Billy Strings, can three-peat in 2023. All right, now let's get to Scotty B and his interview with Natalie Cressman. Natalie was previously a Jambase podcast guest when she shared tour stories with Scotty back in 2018. Natalie spoke remotely with Scotty this time around from her home in Berkeley, California. The new album, Auburn Whisper, centers around the California Redwoods, which hosts the annual Brazil Camp week-long retreat where Natalie first met and eventually reconnected with her musical and romantic partner, guitarist Ian Facchini. Natalie and Ian co-produced the album, and they are the only two musicians who appear on the 13-song effort that was recorded in 2020 while they were forced off the road due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Natalie went on to discuss her songwriting, trombone playing, and other aspects of making the record. She and Scotty also talked about her recent performances with Oteil Burbridge for Oteil and Friends concerts at the Capitol Theater in Port Chester, New York last month. Her Trey Anastasio bandmates Jennifer Hartswick and James Casey were part of those shows, and Natalie shared that James is in good shape following his treatment for colon cancer. The interview also touched on the lessons Natalie learned from late TAB founding bassist Tony Markellis. So be sure to check out the new Natalie Cressman and Ian Facchini album, Auburn Whisper, when it comes out on April 15th. And here's a bit of the title track to lead us into Scotty's interview with Natalie. to welcome Natalie Cressman back to the Jam Bass Podcast. How are you doing, Natalie? Doing great. It's great to be talking with you today. Absolutely. And where, where are you right now? I'm in Berkeley, California for a couple more days and then off to the next city on this tour. 
And Berkeley played an important role in your new album with Ian Fakini, um, Auburn Whisper, which arrives through Ground Up Music on, on April 15th. And let's get into Auburn Whisper by, by talking about your relationship with your longtime musical and romantic partner. How did you meet Ian? It's actually a really funny story. Uh, we thought we had met in the in our early 20s uh, through my mom, who's a great singer and specializes in Brazilian music. So she's the one that introduced me to Ian initially. But then later on, she found this photo album from the late 90s of um, our first time at California Brazil camp. And there's Ian in all the photos playing with me and my sister uh, oh when my he God. had just moved to the U.S. I don't think he even spoke English yet. And so that's part of why we kind of a lot of the album is centered around the California Brazil camp and the Redwoods is coming from kind of where we initially met and also where we reconnected um, musically uh, later in life. So, uh, yeah, we, we kind of didn't realize that until much later that we had actually met as kids at that camp. That's crazy. Uh, what is Brazil camp? What, what, what goes on there? It's hard to even describe, but basically it's a sleepaway camp in the Redwoods um, and they bring artists from all over Brazil. I always say that it's kind of the easiest way to study with all the masters because they're all in this tiny campsite for a week sure. at a time. It would take you a month to travel all of Brazil to see them all and study with them. Um, and it's, yeah, it's really kind of open to all ages and levels. People come from all over the world to study there. And um, my mom has been translating there for many years. And, you know, um, that's kind of how she brought me. She was translating and was able to bring the whole family. And then I just got totally hooked and have been back ever since. And I would assume that you you've always been a big fan of Brazilian music, obviously, since you were a kid. Did that come from from your mother? Yeah, yeah. She kind of jokes about I was born to a story Kaimi record, you know, uh, she <laughs> She, um, you know, has really gotten deep into the music over the years and I grew up tagging along to her gigs. So I heard a lot of music, you know, from Brazil and there's a cool kind of vibrant scene of that here in the Bay Area. So, you know, Ian, you know, fit right into all that as he became an adult and started teaching at the California Brazil camp. And that's where we connected. I took his guitar class. Uh, so he taught you at that point. And do you play much guitar? I do. I'm not very much out and about, um, sure. but especially since the pandemic, I've been doing more of it. And, you know, I love it for, for songwriting because you can't really accompany yourself while you're singing on the trombone. You have to kind of do one or the other. So I, you know, gravitate towards writing on piano and, and guitar for that reason. It makes sense. So let's go back to the awful month of March 2020 when the pandemic hit. I mean, you had released an album not too long before. I know you had many gigs. Uh, what were what were your some of your first steps once the, the pandemic hit? Yeah, well, I, I like I was telling you, I, I fled to the Bay Area to my home, from you know, New York City, from New York City. I, I was actually teaching up in Boston when the whole school district got shut down. And I was like, oh, this is getting dicey. And at the time, Ian and I thought we were going to be touring uh, the Northeast in April. And so my thought was, oh, let me get to wherever Ian is so that we can, you know, make moves, you know, together. And sure. I was worried about getting stuck somewhere. So I just, you know, took you know, a couple of weeks worth of clothes in a suitcase and, and left. And I didn't come back until the Beacon Jams in November of that year. 
Oh my so God, I just ended up so... staying out <laughs> and just waiting and waiting and waiting for things to go back to normal. But thankfully, that's where your family is located. So it was kind of coming home in, in a way. Oh, yeah, I was so like I would have been so isolated in New York and in those early days. So we kind of potted up with my family. We had some really great times um, making meals, um, watching a lot of Beatles documentaries and, and recording. We, that's kind of what we did with all the extra time. Um, we just kind of got into this rhythm of going over to my parents' house, at, um, recording in my dad's studio every week. And so we were able to kind of write and record these 13 songs in a pretty short amount of time. What what amount of and so it was twenty twenty that this uh, album was birthed from, and I mean exactly. when you say a short amount of time, what are, what are we talking? Well, we I guess we had technically started tracking a few songs right before the pandemic in early twenty twenty, and then um, yeah, it was kind of just to keep ourselves from going crazy, <laughs> just trying to do something creative with the time. So we you know would kind of get a song together ready to record the the guitar and vocal parts. And then I'd take the week to make these big trombone arrangements. And that's become such a big part of the sound of the album is just layers and layers of trombone. And that definitely wouldn't have happened if I had been, you know, doing my normal touring at the regular pace that my life was going. Cause it, you know, I was able to take the time to, to really get into writing, which was nice. And yeah, I think we started, you know, pretty early on March and April recording. And then I think we were done tracking by I want to say like August of 2020. And then we kind of just took our time with the mixing process and deciding how we wanted to put it out. And that's, you know, where we linked up with Ground Up and really excited to be putting out some music on their label. And what, how was your relationship been with Ground Up and how did that come together? Well, I've kind of been tangentially in that world for a while. I've, you know, played a lot with the Snarky Puppy guys. I've done a lot of sessions okay. for Ground Up and, you know, when they need trombone in New York. And so they've just been my friends that I see all the time. And I just sent the record to Michael League. I'd known about the the team over there because I'd kind of met them backstage sitting in with Snarky in the past and just kind of throwing out a bunch of ideas of how we might release the music. And they just seemed like the best fit. And um, it's cool because, yeah, kind of coming in being part of, you know, that community already uh, made it very seamless and easy. Absolutely. That's a, a, a beautiful thing. And there are so many layers on each track. I know you're, you've got some shows coming up. I mean, there's times when you're singing and also playing trombone. I mean, how are, how are you going to pull off these songs live? <laughs> well, I think we, we kind of come down with, you know, whatever I can do in the moment that's most important. So it's going to be okay. really different than the album. But I think that's kind of cool because you're getting a different experience live than you would get if you picked up the CD. They complement one another, but they're not exactly the same. And our last album was almost completely live. So it's a real departure from that idea of like a really raw live session. Now it's we're embracing the, you know, the production possibilities and just kind of creating a bigger soundscape than, you know, we can do live with just our, you know, our two um, voices on their instruments. And production-wise, did, did you and Ian produce the Auburn Whisper? Yeah, and my my dad, who was our recording engineer and <laughs> our pod for that time, he was also kind of helping produce, you know, especially the sound design and, and, you know, giving feedback as we went. 
but yeah, it was, it was really collaborative and it was really kind of a blessing in disguise to have all that time to reflect and take whatever time the music needed to, to bring it to completion. And I, I was, I, Ian, I, Ian and I say all the time how it would have taken us years to write this record if we hadn't been totally paused from touring, you know, it, it was, you know, making lemonade out of, out of what we had. Just because it's so dense and, and the multiple parts and the arrangements. Yeah, I mean, there's like four to seven trombones on every track. That's and crazy. It, takes, it took on a life of its own. I, I kept being like, Ian, are you sure you want trombones on this track too? He's like, yeah, on every track on the album, believe me, it's going to be great. And I'm like, I think that's too much trombone. And he was like, no. And now I'm totally into it. And um, I think trombonists respond to it because we, we don't always get that shine of being like a choir of just trombones. Usually we're part of a section with other instruments in a more of a support role so I really you know enjoyed playing with the textures and kind of using my background both you know playing with tab that kind of horn writing also with the more traditional kind of jazz uh, orchestra writing Nelson Riddle is a big influence of mine and a lot of kind of the way I wrote it is really um, kind of taken from those beautiful lush arrangements he did um, behind Frank Sinatra so that was kind of one of the big influences. And do you, did you write the um, English lyrics, I would take it? And who provided the Portuguese lyrics? Yeah, so Ian's got a lot of great collaborators on the lyric front. And the Portuguese, mostly there's, it's mostly Yada Ferreira, who is his big collaborator in Brazil. There's also one song, Bingson Giansa, that's, uh, those lyrics are by Rogério Santos. So there's a couple contributors. Oh yeah. And also Ginga, his big mentor and one of my big mentors, um, he wrote some lyrics to one of the songs too. So there's a, a few different, um, contributions on that front. Very cool. And are there any guests on the album or is it just the two of you playing the music? Just us. Yeah. Partially just because we were, the, you know, the only people we could see during that period of time, you know, so we just kind of embraced it um, and thought it would be just uh, very honest about just like even the subject matter, just what we're going through, the emotions that we were feeling like longing and missing Brazil. And um, already there is a track that's like literally our thoughts and feelings about the pandemic in a song. And uh, I think it was kind of cathartic to, to kind of just put our heads together and figure out what we could do with just the two of us. bring up already there and that's definitely my my favorite track on the album it's such a a great and powerful tune um can, can you tell me about writing that and just the process that that led to that song as an example totally well it was partially a prompt there was this grant going around in the bay area that was you know you could submit a video with an original song that was about the pandemic and so that's kind of what initiated it but really I kind of think of it as 
we were trying to find a positive spin to what we were going through. There was so much uncertainty and stress and, you know, from and, and just every way, not just kind of mourning those, you know, lost opportunities that we were going to get to tour so much in 2020, but also like, can we even be musicians in this kind of a world? Like what, what does, what is our role? How do we fit in? And so it was kind of just trying to find a positive way to look at being at peace with being in the present moment and taking it day by day. And I think the song has a very kind of happy vibe, the music kind of this, this feeling. And and I think there was that duality of, okay, well, it's kind of scary, but we're taking these beautiful walks around the Bay area among nature. And we're actually, you know, getting a chance to pause and kind of be normal people with, you know, normal bedtimes and, and, you know, all the, you know, all the trying to celebrate all the positives that we were, that we could find in those, you know, tough first months of the pandemic. And did you go back to the songs? Uh, did, did, like, did you do one at a time or like, how, how did that process go? Yeah, we pretty much did kind of take one song at a time. So it'd be like one week of tracking basics and one week of doing the, um, of tracking the trombone arrangement. So it was like every two weeks we would be on to a new song pretty much. But there was like one that kind of sat on the cutting room floor forever. And, you know, I think Ian was like, maybe it shouldn't be on the album. And I was at the end of it. I was like, just let me write a horn arrangement. Just let <laughs> me let's see. And that kind of did it. It kind of brought this energy that it was missing. And it's funny because it's kind of the song that everyone gets most excited about when we play live. And it's just kind of funny to imagine that we'd almost given up on it entirely. Which one? It's called Halandu Koku. So okay. it's it's a really fast percussive melody that we sing together. And it's almost like we're about to get tongue twist tongue tied, but we don't. <laughs> so right on the edge of impossible. Um and and yeah, I think it I, I think it totally has a place on the album, but it took a little, you know, zhuzhing to get everyone on board with it. <laughs> Absolutely. And Ian sounds great on the album. Um, you know, I'm always amazed when I see him in concert, how wide his hand can stretch on the neck of a guitar. That just yeah. blows my mind. But I really think he reached a new level vocally. And, um, you know, Hood River, it's interesting to hear him sing in, in English, too. That's the first time he's done it on a record, actually. And he wrote those lyrics, too. So it's kind of... Uh extra special. I'm, I'm happy that he takes the spotlight on that song. The stars are shining And is uh, Hood River ba ba based on the actual Hood River? Yeah, it's actually a really kind of sad and touching story. But um, Ian wrote this, the music for it late one night. He'd come home from some kind of music hang here in the Bay and just kind of struck with inspiration, which 
lucky for him, often happens. Right. <laughs> and um, yeah, the song came pouring out. The next day, he found out that his really good friend from Brazil camp, that her son had passed away mm. in a car accident in Hood River. And those lyrics came pouring out just about kind of his spirit going on and joining, joining, joining the birds and the and the trees and the surroundings. I think I'm not even sure if he had been to Hood River. He'd only maybe been there once. But everyone that's from there that hears the song thinks that like it captures that, you know, setting so beautifully. And it was just kind of one of those crazy things where it felt like he was kind of channeling some energy out there because it just came right out and he normally doesn't even write lyrics. And and I think they're really beautiful. Yeah, I agree. And you never know where the, the muse is, is going to come from. Totally. Yeah. So um, I think that, yeah. And I think he has come into his own as a singer, you know, coming, you know, kind of coming more from just a composer that writes songs to really interpreting his own melodies and his, you know, own lyrics. It's very cool to watch. Very cool. Do you guys ever butt heads when it comes to decisions about the music? Oh, man. Very rarely. I think usually we're on the same page or the the other kind of side of the coin where neither of us can decide what to do. Kind of stuck in that indecision. That happens a lot. Um, But no, I think usually we're on the same page. I think, you know, part of why I think it works so well is that we kind of have our roles. Like I'm not trying to tell him how to compose. Like he gives me that material and then I have my say in the arrangement. And, and I think we give feedback, but I think we kind of know how to do it in a way that's coming from a place of just kindness and respect and just wanting to make it as good as it can be. So, yeah, I think sometimes, there, you know, there's been a couple of moments where we've butt heads, but it, in the end, we end up understanding each other completely. <laughs> like I'm thinking about the, the lyrics to Auburn Whisper at first. Um, I've written these lyrics that I felt really good about that meant really meant something to me. And then he was like, yeah, it needs to rhyme more. And I'm realizing that his perspective is like the rhythm of that song is so Brazilian and in Brazilian and Brazilian Portuguese, a lot of the words really rhyme easily. So you get this kind of symmetry of the sounds of the words and English doesn't lend itself to that quite as well. And so I kind of had to go back and kind of try and hold on to the, inspiration of the meaning but kind of make it a little bit more melodious with the sounds of the words and at first I thought that that was not necessary and then I'm just so happy that I did it because I think it is kind of that kind of continuity in the rhyme scheme is you know totally fits the rhythm better than what my initial lyrics were so that was you know him speaking up have you since recorded anything further we've got a bunch of like songs We've got probably another album's worth already, but we've been just now so busy on the road again that we haven't really gotten into the studio. But yeah, a lot of songs and some of them are instrumental, which will be there's only one song that's instrumental on this album. And it might be cool to to kind of play around with again, going from super orchestrated to strip down to just trombone and guitar again, which well, is that's how what we I was thinking. first started I mean- playing. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but you're, you know, we're going from an album that you recorded live to an album that's so dense. Uh, so what follows that? You know, yeah, it's an interesting I think question. we're finding it out as we go. We've definitely got a mixture of all of it. And um, once we get some time to pause and reflect again, we'll we'll get back into the studio. I think we'll kind of try and do it 
you know, a similar way. There's nothing like recording your album in your pajamas, I have to say. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, at you your know, parents' the, house. At my parents' house. I mean, the amount of comfort and calm that we could have there was just second to none. I mean, I've recorded a lot of albums in New York and while the studios are great and the musicians that I, you know, worked with were great, you know, you're always on the clock and paying for your time there. And it sometimes puts a lid on the inspiration because you feel like, okay, you got to be inspired right now and do your best take. And it's, it, you know, I don't think that musical inspiration necessarily always works within those confines. So I felt just so free to, you know, if I, my voice wasn't feeling good a certain day, we say, okay, we'll try again next week. You know, no big deal. And that was just such a luxury. So we might end up kind of taking a, taking a page out of our pandemic book for the next project and, and doing something similar. That makes sense. And did your father pr- provide much guidance when it came to the songs or, he, or the recording itself? Definitely. the Yeah. I mean, he gave some good input if, you know, sometimes we were still settling in on the form, like how many times to repeat or, you know, what comes in where great on that. Also just having, he's got a great collection of microphones and we were definitely experimenting with different mics and different placement for all the instruments. And um, eventually we kind of settled on, on our favorites, but just having his input on that side was really great. Um, The other one, the other thing I think is just having him as a trombonist, having his ears when I was recording all those horns, because he could tell me like, oh yeah, that was a little, little sharp. Let's do it again. You know, in his perfect dad way that like made me so comfortable. And like, just knowing that having his set of ears there was so great. And, um, yeah, we just kind of are, have a very similar brain, very similar sound. So I think that, you know, having his instincts there while I was recording was just so valuable. I can, I can only imagine um, recently you played some shows with Oteil Burbridge, Oteil and Friends at the Capitol Theater. Uh, how was that experience on your end? Oh, it was amazing. I was, I, I was kind of on cloud nine after those shows for a couple of reasons. One, it was really the, the first time that me and James and Jen got to play like, you know, a full gig as a horn section. And that just felt so good after everything that James has been through and, and Tab has, you know, had all these changes in the last you know, since the pandemic really. And so that was really beautiful, just getting to spend time with them and, you know, being a section again. But then also just the the whole band, just the monstrous musicality that was going down. I was just giddy being able to play, you know, music at that caliber live again. And, I, you know, I've played a lot of um, that catalog of some of the Grateful Dead stuff. And sometimes it's like, where do the horns fit in with this? Cause there's not that much to do sometimes. Yeah. That was my next question. But we were able to, you know, the, the fun of doing something new with it and not trying to be a museum piece of replicating what they did. Um, I think that's the energy that O'Teal brings. That's so special. And all the musicians were on the same page and we were able to really kind of punctuate and make some stuff in, up in the moment like we're so used to doing and I've never had more fun playing that that music um, as as I did with them that weekend that's great and you talked about your your tab sibs uh Jennifer Hartswick and and James Casey um and as as you mentioned um James uh had uh colon cancer and and how is he doing now I think he's doing much better I've spent the last two weekends playing with him and hung out with him, you know, as he was going through chemo and seeing him on the other side is just 
It's so amazing. And I just can't wait for him to just, I mean, this is his year. He's coming back big. It's <laughs> the summer James. It's yeah, the, totally. Um, and I just, as a, as a sib, very proud, very relieved and, you know, excited to, to be out there working together again. And how much uh, rehearsal went into those OTL and Friends shows? We rehearsed like long sound checks, like the day of the show. So we'd have like a long several hour rehearsal before, which I liked. I, you know, I'm used to long hours uh, with with Trey's band and and the way we sound check and rehearse. And it's kind of nice doing that because everything you kind of work out ahead of time is so fresh because you did it that day. (laughs) Sometimes it's better than rehearsing it days before. Absolutely. And, and speaking of Trey, you have some shows coming up. Finally, we'll get the the full lineup t- together, but mm-hmm. they're, they're kind of cut up. I mean, there's going to be some shows in Boston and then a few weeks off and the shows in in Colorado. Does, does that make it tough to, to gain any momentum? Uh, I don't know. We'll see. Won't we? It's been so yeah. long since we've been um, in it like that. I mean, we're going to get some days to rehearse, which is nice. But yeah, it's going to be broken up and we're going to be off doing other things in the spaces, you know. And um, But I guess that's I mean, always kind of been par for the course with the it's, project. Yeah, it's never been like a full-time thing, but it is even more spotty than than yeah. in the past. And But I'm kind of used to that because, you know, it's, especially recently, the the range of things that I'm doing in a given week are so all over the place, you know. I came straight back from the OTL gig to playing like chamber Brazilian music in a church in all, you know, Albany, California. And then, you know, back to a dance party time machine gig in Denver and now stuff with Ian. It's just like, I'm constantly having to kind of put on a different hat and, you know, play to a different style. So I'm, I'm, I'm up for it. (laughs) And do you like that? I do. I mean, I don't think I could get really bored playing just tab shows or just Ian and me shows, but I do like the variety and it, it, it keeps me on my toes. It keeps me learning and growing, which I think that's part of why I love music so much. It's like this, you know, limitless deep well of inspiration and learning. And I, you know, I'm never going to feel like, Oh, I learned music. You know, it's like, it's continuous. I'm never going to be done with the journey. And I love that. I think that's what keeps like me going. It's a beautiful way of looking at it like that. And you, speaking of the, the Trey tour again, uh, the, the one tour that, that did happen, uh, there were all sorts of wild things that happened. The horn section got, got COVID and yet, uh, um, it, it wound up as, as just, a uh, quartet, I believe, or five musicians at the at the end. But uh, one of the early shows that did happen was you got to play with your dad um, in, in Boston. And did you know for a while coming that there was going to be a show where it was the, the, the that you were playing with your father? No, I wish for his sake we had, but it was kind of <laughs> sorry, I'm laughing because it was like Tuesday in rehearsal. Trey's like, oh, we're going to lose Shimei for this gig. Oh, we need a horn player. Who can we call? Your dad? I was like, okay, let me call him. That's like four days notice to like have like 50 songs ready to go. It's, you know, only my dad could pretty much do that. Um, so I'm like, hey, dad, how you doing? Are you, what are you doing this weekend? You want to hop on a plane to Boston in the middle of COVID? Like, come on. 
but it worked out. I mean, he had to get out of a few things, but he studied the music like insanely well for the limited time he had. And we had a quick sound check and he just floored us all. We were just jaws on the floor. Was, you know, he's playing tenor saxophone parts on a trombone. There's like a transposition and different range to contend with. And yeah. he hasn't played the book in years. And he just comes in and crushes it. I had so much fun. I would say that's probably one of the highlights of the last couple of years was just getting to be on stage with my dad. Oh, that was that's incredible. So sweet. <laughs> Unfortunately, we during COVID we we lost Tony uh, Markellis. Do you remember the the last time that you saw him? Yeah, I saw him during the Beacon Jams, and you know, part of what was really hard about losing him was that we were kind of keeping not keeping to ourselves, but trying to stay distant for the sake of COVID during that those shows. Right. And so I didn't really. I think maybe I. I was breaking the rules, but I might have stolen one hug that whole time we were there. And I wish I had had several, you know, just because knowing that it was the last time I saw him. But we did get that time together, which was so special. And um, he's just been part of my family ever since I met him. And, you know, I was 18 and he looked out for me on the road and always had just such kind things to say about my music and um yeah, I'm so lucky to have him in my corner for all the time I did and miss him terribly. Of I can only imagine. It can can you share maybe something that that you learned from him or or a specific great experience that you had with 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 Tony? Yeah, well, a lot of it centers around food because we're both foodies. And so he would send me pictures of his annual lobster safari. And and yeah, the first tour that we did. Lobster safari. Yeah, he would go up to Maine and just eat a bunch of lobster and send me pictures of how big they were and where he was. And, um, you know, he would he was good about keeping in touch like that with some, you know, funny content. And um, yeah, in the first few tours, he would be like, "Okay, we're going to this city this is the Portuguese restaurant to go to. I'll, I'll, you know, call a car for us, you know, and he took me out to dinner in places I'd never been and wouldn't have known where to go to get a, good, a nice meal. So those are some really nice moments. And he was kind of a night owl. So sometimes it would be just me and, and him or me and a couple people on the bus late as we're driving to the next city. And he'd get kind of um, philosophical and, you know, share okay. some of his stories about his early days touring and, just outlooks on life and, and just random stories. And it would just kind of keep me, um, you know, it's kind of like bedtime stories, you know, keep me, uh, yeah, just 
really, I don't know, very, very, very calming and, and homey for, you know, what can be sometimes a kind of sterile environment. And um, there was one more thing I wanted to say about, about him. Oh, things you learned. Yeah. Things I learned from him. So when I first joined the band, I was um, still in college and trying to juggle both. And he told his piece of advice, which was treated as a nine to five Monday through Friday job, like basically telling me not to work too hard, that I, you know, needed to save some time to balance, be balanced and make time to just live my life and, and not just be studying all the time. So I, I think that I've definitely taken that to heart because I used to just kind of, oh, well, if it's physically possible to do all these things, I'm just going to go ahead and do it. And now sure. I kind of have Tony's voice in my head saying, no, you know, pick your moments, make sure you're taking care of yourself, you know, respect your, you know, what your, what your brain and body are capable of and, and don't try and be a hero for no reason. That's certainly sage advice. And um, Desron Douglas is, is now playing bass for for Tab, and um, you had performed with him a number of times previous to. Yeah, him yeah, Tabber. he's played with Jen's band for years, and you know I've guested with her all over the place, and I do think that that's kind of the best. I mean, no one can really replace Tony, of but course. the best replacement for him in the band is someone that's already family, because that's what's so important. I think about. The band beyond everyone's musical prowess, which, you know, I'm huge fans of what everyone can do musically, but it's, you know, just as important, I think, is that we have that family vibe. We all, you know, are there for each other, you know, as as people as well. So I think he fits right in with that. And I can't wait to do more because it was, you know, I got, I think, about five shows in before the horn section got sent home. And I'm just, I'm ready to rock now. Let's go. Only imagine. (laughs) Well, we look forward to it and looking forward to um, Auburn Whisper and the shows that you'll be playing with with Ian. And um, I I assume it'll be a a busy year Um, this fall. Do you do you see more shows with with Ian and with Tab? Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, we'll we'll see we'll see how it all rolls out. I think part of part of the vestiges of the pandemic is that we don't know our schedule as far in advance as we used to because everyone's just kind of trying to gauge, you know, what things are going to be like a few months out. Um, but yeah, I expect to be busy touring with both, and you know, we we're touring right now and. You know, in the in the gaps of our, you know, April situation, we'll be doing some shows. So, um, yeah, can't wait. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's always good getting to chat with you.
all for this episode of the Jam Base Podcast. As always, our many thanks to each and every one of you out there for listening. Thank you for your continued support. Thanks also to Natalie for coming back to talk to Scotty. Be sure to check out the new Natalie Cressman and Ian Facchini album, Auburn Whisper, when it comes out on April 15th. Thanks to our sponsor, La La Le. Visit LALAL.ai and start separating stems today. Jake Alexander helped produce this episode. Thanks, Jake. We'll be back next week. So in the meantime, stay safe out there. Go see live music.